0: Hello and welcome to episode number 200 of the show. Interestingly enough, 200, that's 2100's Armin Show podcast in the place to be. And on this episode, we have a very special guest. This is wonderful. We have Professor Scott Page from the University of Michigan, author of The Model Thinker. Scott, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great
1: to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: This is wonderful. Now, I just want to do a bit of introduction there. Scott is a professor of complex systems, political science, and economics, At the University of Michigan, focuses on diversity and complex systems. Has worked with and written a book with John Miller, who I once interviewed about his book, A Crude Look at the Whole, which is kind of cool. And you've written five books The Model Thinker, one about diversity, complex adaptive social systems, the difference, and diversity and complexity. Now, the first thing that comes to mind is what caused this focus on diversity? and complex systems in the first place?
1: That's a great question. So I was trained as a game theorist. So I worked under Roger Meyerson, who some people might know as a Nobel Prize winner in economics for his work on game theory, which he considers hyper-rational agents. So, you know, people who can kind of figure everything out. Mm-hmm. And while in grad school, I went to visit a place called the Santa Fe Institute, which was a think tank on complexity. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I became sort of aware of is that You can really only optimize simple things, right? When something's really complex, it becomes Mm -hmm. very hard to figure out what you should do. And so when you think about trying to make sense of complexity, one of the things you have to do, given that each one of us is, you know, bounded, is to sort of have diverse people, right? So what you want is you want people who come at a problem in different ways. So. When you say I work in, on diversity, it's true, but I work on diversity in, in a somewhat different way than most people in the sense that when you say diversity, most people would say identity diversity, race, gender, sexual orientation, those right. sort of things. And what I'm looking at is sort of people who come at the world using different representations of problems with different information, with different ways of seeing things, different metaphors, different models. And so the new book, The Model Thinker, is all about how we live in this paradoxically, this age where there's a ton of information, but at the same time we're aware that the problems we confront are really complex. Mm-hmm. It's, I argue the way to go at that is using ensembles of models, much the way that sort of artificial intelligence does. Mm-hmm. I read about this. This is wonderful in the book,
0: The Many Models Approach, because one will leave out gaps, whereas multiple models fill in some of the gaps that you might have in a system. One thing, so into the model concept, I thought of this one. For a person, is there a model that would come to mind that, like for a default individual, that's the first model you'd use to represent something that would change their worldview for that day or onward? Something like in their life that
1: they see every day? I think one of the things that's really important in people's... I think that people are predisposed to think about the world in a linear fashion, Mm -hmm. right? So you might think like, if I exercise more, I'll lose weight. If I, you know... Invest more. I'll have more money in retirement. I think one of the things to think about a lot that people neglect to think about are feedbacks, right? So, mm-hmm. oftentimes when you take an action, there's going to be pushback from the system, right? So you may you may eat less. You may say I'm going to cut out all chocolate, but by cutting out chocolate, you might find that you're you know adding a little bit extra milk in your coffee, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or maybe right. resting a little more during the day, and then your weight, you know, your body sort of adjusts, and you actually don't end up losing any weight. And the other thing is externalities. So one of the you know, one of the models that I present in the book that most people don't know is something called the Lyon model, which asks a really mm-hmm. fundamental question that, you know, when, if you just kind of let people freely take actions, will the system sort of settle into an equilibrium or will it produce patterns, or mm-hmm. produce complexity, or just produce randomness? And will the outcome be good? Right? So you could take an action that you think, but well, this is a really good thing for me to do personally but it creates you know, sort of negative effects or sometimes positive effects on other people. And I think so often we're thinking about ourselves as opposed to thinking about downstream implications of what we do. Right, like the
0: feedback loops,
1: the later effects. absolutely. It's sort of like companies, they're now including
0: a carbon tax that they didn't have to include before, or later on we'll have to look at air quality, how we're affecting just the air that we breathe, because right now it's free, or water was once free in some form, but at some point we have to include that in the economic model.
1: Oh you know you're I mean you're so spot on and this is where you know one of the things I'm really hoping the book can have an impact is that it used to be when you made a business decision you sort of could do a kind of a cost benefit calculation right mm-hmm. now you'll recognize that there's all sorts of implications in any decision in terms of environmental impact mm-hmm in terms of the income distribution, in terms of what kind of people are you hiring, right? Right. And so it's, you know, in terms of like possibly the mental or physical health of your employees, their commute times, if you're thinking about building a new plant. And so I think it used to be we had just such a narrow view of, you know, business decisions in terms of profit and loss, in terms of the price is going to capture everything. And now we realize there's all these social, ecological, right, environmental effects of every decision we make. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I think is really useful whenever you think about you know coming at a problem is to say okay here's how I think about it this is a good way mm-hmm. instead to you know ask okay, is there another way to think about this right is there a second model or a second framework that I might apply that's and the key is also to think of a second framework that's like very different from the one you're normally using right, right. this brings to
0: mind now when you originally you had your course and your teachings and then
1: you had a different framework
0: that you went to which was the online course. With your first run, you got sixty thousand students online, and then the second time around, a million students. Well what led you to do that? Did you see the reach that you could get?
1: And did you like that experience? You know, so this is so the Model Thinker in many ways is a gift to the million students who've taken the online course. Mm -hmm. And the because they were so fantastic. And I think that no one who went into that had any idea I think we thought of it in terms of outreach. Like we're going to be able to communicate to hundreds of thousands of people, but I don't think we ever expected to sort of feel the love that we would feel and the gratitude and and just graciousness of all these people who took the course. I mean, it was just the outpouring of support has just been fantastic. I mean, I just get you know emails and notes and gifts in the mail. It's been a wonderful experience. The reason I taught the course at Michigan, to be honest, Mm -hmm. had to do with some legal – Issues At the time, it was, so mine was the first course offered through Coursera, mm-hmm. which was a consortium of – so Andy and Daphne Kohler had done some sort of initial courses out of Stanford, but then they created this company called Coursera, which was a consortium of universities. Mm-hmm. Mine was about first. The reason Michigan had media by models courses, they couldn't get legal, the legal right to put up you know, charts and tables and documents from online printed material. So Michigan was supposed to teach a social science course. Mm -hmm. So teach a course on inequality, you'd like to throw up lots of data. Right. But publishing houses and journals weren't going to allow Michigan at the time. Now they do to just throw all their information on the web. Right and subscribe to journals. So Michigan was like, wow, we need an interesting social science course. No no joke intended here, but it doesn't have facts in it. (laughs) You know, in the sense that like it's not based on lots of data, right? Mm And so I happen to be teaching this popular course on models and they thought, you know, that's actually probably almost ideal in terms of because, you know, each one's self contained, mm-hmm. right? So, and, and it just worked out great. I think that the, the course was a perfect sort of set of material for the format. One of the reasons why is I, I use this metaphor of the models course and the models book are like a trip to the zoo, not a train trip. You mm-hmm. know, so a train trip would be like you get on the train in New York you go to LA. If you stop off in Kansas City and have a cigarette and the train takes off, you're you're lost, right? right. Miss one lecture, you're done. Right. The models book, you know, so we're doing Markov processes. And then the next week we do linear models and then we do game theory. Then we do coordination models. You know, if you miss one or don't get it, or it doesn't interest you, or you kind of fall off. It right. doesn't matter. You know, I didn't like the snake exhibit, I'm gonna go to the monkey cage. Right? Right. I didn't like the monkey cage, I'm gonna go see the birds. Right. So it allowed people to sort of Dig in deep on what they liked, and it just the format was fantastic, and the people were amazing. You know, mm. from all over the world, just amazing people. Hmm.
0: This is a nice feature of Reach: connecting with the people that match with you, or need, or want what you are putting out there. That's a cool feature.
1: And the other thing that was really cool. So one of the models that in it was really popular from the online course is something called the SIR model, where you're susceptible, infected, and then recovered. And this is kind of the workhorse model in public health schools, mm-hmm. right, for, you know, the transmission of diseases. And it was wonderful about that. You know, it's in the book. was also wonderful in the online courses. A lot of times people in public health, math isn't their strength. And so someone's teaching intro to public health, and they've got to teach this mathematical model. Mm-hmm. And they would do it, but a lot of students were like, wow, I don't understand that. And suddenly to have a set of videos you could watch that, you know, you could watch multiple times, mm-hmm. Um was fantastic. And also I think what was really cool about that lecture is in the SAR model, they're doing it just entirely in terms of like, you know, mumps, measles, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in the book I talk about how you can use that same model to talk about, you know, the growth of the internet or Facebook or even you know, someone even modeled Justin Bieber as a disease. And it right. turns out Yeah, and Bieber fever is actually sort of like, you know, more viral than the measles. Right. You know, it's like the it's the worst epidemic of our time. When- <laughs> <laughs> oh, right It's cool because then you're like why you know one of the cool things about these models is once you have them you know you can you can apply them anywhere right like these bird scooters that you see on college campuses everywhere right mm-hmm. That's a classic sort of infection right you know all of a sudden people see in one place and it goes in another place and it just spreads Right and then it's everywhere The
0: multiplicative yeah. effect I looked at that in multiple ways kind of like uh, the Matthew effect that you had mentioned where if something is viewed, then it's more likely to be viewed again versus when they remove the view numbers, it's kind of spread out evenly through a group, not so maximal level, not so minimal level.
1: Yeah, Right. I think that one of the things that's really intriguing about all these different frameworks, and one of the things I push hard in the book is that we have a lot of intuitions, right? You mm-hmm. know, that good begets good, bad begets bad. There's negative feedbacks. There's positive feedbacks. I, mean, I, I joke a little bit in the book and in the course about opposite proverbs, like everything your grandmother right. said he who hesitates is lost. Right, there was You're an opposite to,
0: for each opposite. one.
1: Yeah, astiction time saves nine. Two heads are better than one, too many cooks spoil the broth, right? Mm-hmm. And what's mm-hmm. really good about the sort of, about models is they sort of tie you to the mast of logic and you can figure out conditionality, like when is it the case that, you know, a stiction time saves nine and when is it the case that he who hesitates is lost? And I think that, um, you know, That conditionality and also your ability to sort of like bring the models to data. I mean, mean, you know this better than anyone. We are just awash in data. right? And if you don't have some sort of framework or lattice on which to array that data, there's not much you can do, right? Other than say, wow, we've got a lot of data. Or you find yourself just doing a linear model, right? Right. You just
0: look at it and you don't know what to do. You try to decipher in some way what's valuable, but there's a lot of it. We kind of do filtering automatically, which is a nice feature. We start to look at, oh, this is relevant to me. Uh, these things look like noise. And that's one thing I had uh, noticed. I wanted to mention the, you ta- you talked about entropy. And then yeah. I, I used to have a channel called Arm Entropy, combining my name with that, because I like the concept of it and uncertainty. And uh, I think about it like too much entropy is like in Photoshop when you put add noise and then the whole thing is just a bunch of scattered dots. There's no meaning to it. And then uh, if you had no entropy, it would just be a solid color. And you had mentioned in the book that uh, entropy, some level of entropy is useful up to a point. And then beyond that, it uh, is not useful to
1: be so random. Yeah. And one of the things you about, I was looking, you know, in prepping for this, I was looking at I saw that you used to have a, a thing related to entropy, which is super cool, mm-hmm. is that people don't, People don't recognize the difference between variance and entropy. You know, so we use variance in social science all the time, and people look at people will see data from the social science or in finance, and it's got variance, mm-hmm. and they'll see other things where it's got entropy. And variance is really just a measure of dispersion. So there can only be two outcomes: one really low, one really high. I mm-hmm. don't have a lot of variance because there's a lot of dispersion, yes. but that's actually low entropy because so there's only two possibilities. Right. And I think people don't see the difference between dispar- you know, so entropy is really a measure of surprise or uncertainty or information mm-hmm. as opposed to variation. And people don't people don't recognize that. And so one of the things that's I've felt has been a great opportunity both from the book and the course is just you know, people will send me emails saying, Wow, I never knew the difference between those two things. And also people are frightened by logarithms. Right. Right. And so it's like, Oh no, it's a logarithm. Right. And um, so they never choose to learn entropy, and, and you can learn the concept of entropy, you know, without a deep understanding of what a logarithm is, and still recognize then when someone's using it in a sentence or you read it in a paper, like what that's capturing.
0: Right. Two points there. One is uh, related to the entropy. I noticed that you mentioned like entropy is uh, giving equal weight to many different right. uh, uh, items versus variance is like going towards one extreme or one other. And it's sort of like, personality-wise, if someone was uh, seeing 20 people as basically even versus the variance method would be like, oh, this person is very um, uh, like high in some category and this other person is not. So it's like more judging or choosing, kind of.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. That's right. And it's also, I think, one of those things where when you think... Um, Entropy is – so let's uh, let's take something like these notions from business about, like, adaptive capacity, like, you know, mm-hmm. or evolution about, you know, how does evolution work. We tend to say – when people sort of tell the Darwinian story, they'll say, well, there's variation and then there's selection.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The thing is, is that when Darwin's using the word variation, he, I think he really means more that there's entropy in the sense that there's a lot of – you know, there's a lot of different types out there to choose from,
2: right? Because
1: mm-hmm. you could have, you know, just in terms of, like, variance – if we used a technical term, it would mean like there's really big cardinals and really small cardinals and nothing in between, right? And what you really want is you want a distribution across a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so the what's funny is that I think the term entropy scares a lot of people, but a, a, just a solid foundational understanding of it and how, how it differs from variance is useful in terms of how you think about the world. And also now, given, again, let's go back to all this data and the ability to just instantly compute things,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you can... sort. You know, you could compute the like ex- exposure-selling sweaters uh-huh. in a range of colors. You could sort of compute the entropy of the distribution across those colors. Uh-huh. And that would give you some sense of like, whoa, the entropy's changing. I'm seeing a sense in, you know, I'm seeing a, a change in consumer taste. And then you could kind of wonder why. And then you might look at the models from the book about sort of pure effects and coordination, those sorts of things, right? Yes. And so it's um, it's just... What I think is fun is that you can use these really simple frameworks as kind of a just a way to organize your thinking. And you don't have to be an expert. I mean, one of the things that's so great is there's so many experts. There's people who are really good at math, uh-huh. computer science, and you can work with those people, right? And right. I think the combination, I mean, it's back to the first study, The combination of what you can accomplish is just is huge. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh.
0: Now, one thing, you had mentioned log, and this is one thing that came up in my mind. There's some uh, models or formulas where I, I have a sense of it. Like, I can I can see an exponential growth curve in my mind instantly when I see something. But I thought about, like, log maybe not as much and some others. Do you, because you've worked with them, a lot of them, do you see a lot of them intuitively? I see a couple, but not all of them.
1: Some are intuitive. Others are not. Like, one of the things that I really, you know, isn't in the books It was just – too complicated. It's people who do this natural language processing and semantic analysis. Mm -hmm. I know somebody who does that, a speech therapist. Yeah, and where you you don't know the distribution across outcomes, Mm -hmm. and you start out with something called a Dirichlet distribution, and then you kind of update it. And the reason you do is these distributions are really sloppy in the sense that no matter what information you see, you can kind of keep updating your prior about what the distribution really is. And so Mm -hmm. a Dirichlet distribution can take almost any form You know, if you started out by saying, look, I think it's a normal distribution, but Mm -hmm. then you started gathering data, and you realized it wasn't a normal distribution, you'd have to throw the whole thing out, right? Oh, right, yeah. But just a distribution, you can just, you know, depending on what parameters you choose, you can get something that looks kind of like a normal, something that kind of looks like a log normal, something that kind of looks like a power law. And so there's so much flexibility in the class of distributions. No matter what you see, you don't have to kind of start over. And then you're not ever guilty of, you know, Overfitting, like, oh, you looked at the data, saw it was normal, and then switched to normal. But things like that, it's really hard to get intuition for because it seems like there's just too many degrees of freedom Mm
2: -hmm.
1: in what the assumption is. And one of the things, again, that, you know, it doesn't keep me up at night, but you worry about a bit is you'd like to think that, you'd like to hope Mm -hmm. that people have a deep understanding of how these processes work, as opposed to just like, oh, somebody wrote a subroutine in R. This is what other people are doing, mm-hmm. download it. Right. Right.
0: Right. You want there to be someone where they're like they feel
1: it almost and they logically right.
0: they can process their way through the graph or the curve of the representation
1: of it. Yeah, and I think if you spend more time you know, I think if you spend time using any any model a lot, right, then what's gonna happen is you're gonna sort of start developing some intuitions for it. Mm-hmm. There's really both an art and a science to this, right? So there's the mathematical proof of why something works, Uh but there's kind of the art of constructing them in interesting ways. And, um, you know, those different one of the, I mean, when you're saying like, you know, what model would people want? And I was talking about these sort of feedbacks, Uh like one, one of my favorite models in the book are these Markov decision models where like I'm in some sort of state. I'm like bored or happy. And then I take some, I take some action. When I take that action, I get some payoff right mm-hmm. but then i also transition to possibly some other states
2: mm-hmm. and the simple
1: example i give in the book is that like you know i could be kind of like really engaged in my thinking or kind of bored and i could either like surf the web or do work mm-hmm. and the thing is that what can happen is you can get yourself caught in like a little trap where you're bored so you're surfing the web you're bored so you're surfing the web and instead if you would you know just sit back and you know go read a book and study suddenly you get engaged and then when you're engaged you wouldn't want to surf the web right so you can sort of right this you can just get caught in a really virtuous cycle or a really vicious cycle and it's easy to see how that plays out in so many aspects of our lives in terms of you know one thing i enjoy in teaching undergraduates is just helping them recognize that there's some very basic things like sleeping well eating well exercising studying and if you do that every day mm-hmm. it's going to be pretty easy and you're going to be pretty productive <laughs> but instead you know they're often like oh i haven't worked out in four days or i haven't slept in two days or you know right. you know just eating pizza and you're like whoa whoa you know think about this right just um and they're not really what they're doing is at each moment in time they're taking the action that they think this is the best thing i can do at this moment in time right but not thinking about what state that's putting their mind and what state that's putting their body.
0: Right. It doesn't include the long-term. A lot of things I've thought about recently are, are very obvious when you think, like, where would I like to be in five years, but become very difficult if you're thinking, how would I want to feel in 10 minutes, let's say. And then also what you're saying, the consistency factor. When you start doing a thing every day or two, it becomes easy. Now it's part of your habits. You build momentum. People know you do that thing, so they support you on that. There's a lot of uh, benefits.
1: No, that's right, and it's also one of the other like really fun models in the book. One that the students really love is the this coordination model, where like, if you hang out with people mm-hmm. who you know pull all nighters, then you've got no choice but to pull all nighters, right. right? And if you hang out uh, with people who are you know studying two days before the exam, then you've kind of got no choice but to study two days before the exam if you want to work with your group. Mm-hmm. And what's funny is, is like you know. Well, they'll talk to their friends who go to other colleges and these are kids who went to high school together very similar and then all of a sudden like you know one of them goes to you know university of chicago one goes to michigan one goes to michigan state one goes to ucla or something and they become very different people right because they're right. coordinating with other people
0: yeah heavy impacts of social connection because yeah. you only have so many choices when you're around people And if you're doing what they're not doing now, it's like offensive to them or something like that.
1: Right, absolutely.
0: One thing you had mentioned, the Markov decision model, I noticed I like the Markov models representing multiple things like the opioid epidemic, the connections between uh, people that were in pain or no pain and then opioid usage and then addicted and then the transition percentages within them making an equilibrium. Uh, I noticed, I feel like, I feel like people have a somewhat, without knowing the model, intuitive sense of some of these equilibrium states that are in society because they start to feel like this is going to be this way, but they don't know the exact numbers behind it. So it's very nice to actually have that.
1: Yeah, and what's nice about that example is that, I mean, just to kind of walk through it again, when you do a drug approval, mm-hmm. one of the you ask is, you, your first question you ask is, does it work? Because if it doesn't work, right, it's not worth even going through the process. Then the second question is, you know, what are the are side effects? Are there harmful side effects? And one side effect here would be, you know, people become addicted. Mm-hmm. And the rates of addiction were quite low. I mean, not – I mean, they, can, they looked at it, right, and it seemed like it was safe. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is that if you draw – I mean, if you draw a very simple Markov model where you say there's three possibilities. One is I'm in a lot of pain. hmm the other possibility is I'm on opioids, and so I'm not in pain, but I'm managing it fine. Right. And the third possibility is I'm addicted. Mm-hmm. And so you can move from opioids to addicted. But the thing is, once you're an addicted, it's very hard to get out. Right. right. So if you imagine, like, people flowing between those boxes, once you flow in the opioid box, it's hard to flow out. It's like a heavy, uh, what do you call it, one of those heavy, uh, like, a trench in
0: those models that, like, you would fall yeah. into it. Yes.
1: No, it's like a big magnet just holding you there, right? Whatever, mm-hmm. you know, use your metaphor. And... So it's interesting though, if you think there's like a 1% chance of being addicted, you end up with small, some small percentage of people being addicted. But if you up that to like 3%, that's mm-hmm. just a lot of people flowing into the addicted box and then they can't get out. Then you end up with like 10% of people addicted. You know, right. so you get a big nonlinear effect. And what's intriguing is you think, well, how did that happen? How did they miss it? Well, one way you missed it is that in the trials, you weren't giving people a month long subscription. Right. And the trials, you weren't allowing people to go doctor shop. And in the trials, there weren't states like, you know, Idaho, where you can call a psychiatrist and say, I'm in pain, and they can t- prescribe it over the phone, right? So you can doctor shop over the phone in rural states. And you could think, how could they let this happen? Well, the thing is, is that, you know, suppose I'm in, you know, rural Michigan, the upper Peninsula Michigan, I drive 45 miles to the pharmacy. If I'm the doctor, I'm not going to say, you've got to come in every three days. Mm-hmm. Because that's a, you know, you've got someone who's in pain, who's older, so you say, look, here's a 30-day subscription.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But when you do that, when you give that person a 30-day subscription, right. you're upping that 1% probability to 3%. And mm-hmm. then you're increasing the number of people who got addicted, right, from 2% to 10%. So, right. And again, that's where if, if the doctors had been more aware of, like, you know, Markov sort of thinking that, you know, once people become addicted, they're not going to get out. Right. I think they'd have been they'd have been low to make these longer prescriptions and many states, including, you know, my own Michigan. Now you can't get, I think it's like five days. You know, you need, you can't get more than a few days of the opioids mm-hmm. for good reason. Right. Again, but we shouldn't, here's the thing, right. And this is where I think, again, when you think about models as almost like a form of insurance policy. Sometimes, right. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't have had to go through this. Right. I mean, right. If they'd have used, if they'd have thought about this more carefully, using more models, calibrated them better I think part of the issue is you don't want to run an experiment where you give people opioids, someone opioids for 30 days to see if they become addicted, right? right. Because that sort of violates the Hippocratic Oath. Right. That sort of definitely <laughs> violates it. We're looking for student volunteers <laughs> to take opioids for 30 days and we're going to see how many lives we've ruined. I mean, you just can't do that experiment. Right. Right. One thing, I, yeah,
0: like in that kind of concept, it's sort of like the logistics or the company advantages uh, outweigh thought of how it impacts. It's sort of like for school school sort of ends up starting at 8 o'clock for most kids even though they do better at 9 but it's like it's almost it serves a daycare purpose starting at 8 so the logistics right. of it kind of uh, ignore some of the losses of like lack of sleep or whatever preparedness same thing with maybe the doctor's office they're used to a certain framework that generates their profit or how they do things so then they lose this uh, possible benefit to helping people lose uh, lose their pain without being addicted.
1: No, that's right. That's exactly right.
0: Now, one thing that came to mind was uh, about diversity. Is there a like the diversity model? Uh, are there numbers? What was I going to say? Like, how would it break down? That this is like for social diversity. That what would be the best? diversity of people in a group is there like percentages is there a certain amount where it's good to have this amount of people included in the group is there numbers like that
1: here's i think i mean that's a great question it's it's and it's really at the frontiers of where we're at so Mm -hmm. one of the things is it used to be like we had to look to evidence of something like this we might have like 10 studies from you know, experiments in psychology departments, and you could say based on that you need four people or something. Mm-hmm. Now you've got cases. So Google, for example, gets over three million applicants a year. Wow, it's a lot.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so they can test, like, you know, is somebody above average? Like, so somebody makes it through their regular just screening, and they say, okay, so the odds of someone would be above average would be 50 percent. Right. The odds the low average would be 50 percent. They say, okay, what if we add a personal interview? What are the odds that the person's above average? And it goes to 76 percent. So you think, okay, it's worth interviewing. And what if we have a second person who's different interview? Then it goes to like eighty. What if we have a third, it goes to eighty three. What if we had a fourth, it goes to eighty-six. What if we have a fifth, it stays at eighty-six? What if you had a sixth? It stays mm-hmm. at six. What if you had a twelfth? You're still at eighty-six. <laughs> okay. Stop at four. Right. Um there's other things like if you look at a wonderful study by um Jack Sol and people at Duke, where they looked at economists. You know, predicting the six main economic indicators in the EU and the United States. This is like forty-eight thousand predictions over forty periods, and these are these are professional economists. And mm-hmm. then what you find is the best one, the best person, was like nine percent better than an average person. But if you average in the second best person, you do almost 17 percent better. So this is like this is why my diversity bonus is like you think, wait a minute, like one's nine percent better, one's eight percent better. Am I take them both, I'm sixteen percent better. I mean, right. That speaks- you know, when one person's high, if the other one happens to be low, their errors kind of, you know, the, their diversity sort of cancels out and you get a really accurate prediction. If they both happen to be higher, both happen to be low, then you don't lose that much than you had by having just one of them, right? So right. the diversity really helps you. So in those studies where it's kind of a higher dimensional thing, a lot more data, um, you get like seven or eight. Preston McAfee, um, did this study on European soccer. People can bet on like which soccer stars are going to score goals. So they have like 10 million people predicting there. They get, you know, 10 or 11, right? Again, lots of data. Um, people care about it deeply. So, you know, I think, and you know, Phil Tetlock in his super forecasting book would say, you know, yeah, these groups of, you know, seven eight nine ten eleven 10, um, 11 can do a lot better than groups of three, four, five. Now the question is what kind of diversity you need here, it really boils down to what's the nature of the problem, uh-huh. right? And so, if you're looking at the economy, you could say, okay, do I need racial and gender diversity? And the thing is, the answer is probably yes, because the thing is, there just might be things that, you know, a group of all men wouldn't see, right? There mm-hmm. might be things that um, a group of all white people wouldn't see. There might be things that people who'd never been, to, you know, the non-European economists, if you never know, have a single European economist that you might miss, right? Or somebody who knew South America or China. So, you want to have... I mean, I think the diversity has to fit the task to some extent, but it's also got to be the case. All else equal, you don't know um, what diversity is going to be useful in a given setting. And so I think that there's three things you always want to make sure you've got at the table. You want some diversity in training. So you don't want all economists, all sociologists, all architects, right? Right. You want some diversity in experience, right? So you don't want everybody who's lived in the same town, grown up in the same places. So if we're talking about How do we eradicate childhood poverty? And I take a whole bunch of people who grew up in, you know, in rich suburban houses, Mm -hmm. right? Went to elite private schools, went to great law schools. They've got no lived experience, right? And so it's hard to imagine they're going to come up with workable solutions because they can't put themselves in the minds of people who've lived very different lives. And then the third thing, I think, because our identities, you know, so much of what we experience and think is filtered through our identities that you probably want identity diversity in most rooms. Right. For no other reason, like if I'm in a room with someone who's identity diverse than me, and this is true of everyone, you just think differently. Like We're just more comfortable being around people who are like us. And when you're trying to come up with great solutions to problems, comfortable is probably not good. <laughs> right. Right. You want to be challenged a bit.
0: Right. I've noticed that has to be out of the box or else uh, it's part of the regular framework. Right. Well, one thing there you mentioned about the upper class lower class it reminded me of the part about social mobility and how there was a, a chart showing the connection between them and the likelihood of remaining in that social class and it was noticeable that most remain in their own class 50 percent of middle class would remain there but even if it was higher for lower and upper class they were 60 or 70 percent likely to remain in their class the impacts of their own uh, group giving them opportunities or leaving them with less opportunities.
1: Right. No, it's, I mean, these are difficult questions because things, if you, if you achieve, you know, some measure of wealth or educational status or social status and then you have children, you not only give them financial resources, but you also, And this, you know, the sun also rises The work by um, Gregory Clark, you also give them a whole bunch of habits, and ways of thinking and commitment to things like you know education, tolerance, those sorts of things that enable them to be successful. And so it's it's not obvious at all that um, what those numbers should look like. Mm-hmm. And if I mean, if, if things were perfectly fair, um, I, I mean, I think that these are deep philosophical questions in terms of like you know what what counts as fair, right? I mean, certainly we should be allowed to pass on um behaviors that we think have been successful to us to our children, right? Yes. And we want that. But that I mean one of the things that the models sort of show is that I mean that is going to probably then mean that there's going to be some hysteresis, you know, or sort of stasis in in income levels, right? Because, you know, you're going to pass on to your children, you know, mm-hmm. a certain behaviors that are going to allow them to be more successful than some of whose parents aren't passing those on. So I think that. the, the the thing is, those as we see that, what we need to do is ask as a society, what are those behaviors, right? There's not going to be necessarily one set, but I think we want to make sure that we're um, making everyone aware of the sort of things that they can do to flourish. And this gets back to our earlier comment about, like, you know, eating, sleeping, studying, <laughs> those sorts of things. Right. I mean, it's a very Protestant view, but, um, you know, it holds up. Mm-hmm.
0: When you repeat something, it works. But also that reminds me of the replicator model for learning something that is repeatable is more likely to become the main that everybody uses. Right. To learn something or do something, which kind of connected you. One part you mentioned that, uh, many, we don't see many slow footed, tasty animals with vibrant colors because they got <laughs> eaten. And so that made me think, of, like, I look at everything I see is the most sharpened form of what we have come to up to this point, because everything else was knocked out in some form, so we are seeing the crispest that uh, organisms or environment has given us, uh, which kind of reminds me of The Selfish Gene, sort of the, it uh, defending itself. Did you, have you read that book, or do you like that concept of the,
1: like... I, no, I have, and the thing is, I mean, Dawkins is such a, you know, he's such a brilliant writer, and he, one of the things that when you undertake a project like this, you know, your goal is clarity, right? Your goal is to try and um, present these ideas in a way that people can understand them. And I think that a lot of credit goes to basic books, you know, for just supporting a book like this, right? Because it's a book, it's, it's a 450 page book with a lot of math in it. Mm-hmm. And the challenge, you know, the challenge basic book before me and that, you know, I had was like, can I write this in a way that people's experiences with the book will be like yours? Where they're gonna be like, oh, I'm reading this replicator dynamics model, which is a little more technical than what um Dawkins has in his books. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of the self I gene. Mean, when you say things like that, or other people say things like that, right. it makes me just so happy because you know I realize like, you know, I'm helping people go, you know, maybe just one level deeper analytically. Mm-hmm and then seeing like okay you know because one of the things that, about that chapter that's so cool is you see like oh if it's a decision problem or i'm in isolation and i apply replicator dynamics oh I, it works evolution finds the optimal right but in that example like the suvs and the mini cooper you realize whoa if it's a if it's a game or we're carving out niches evolution could you know lead to something kind of weird right? right and that you know it, I think that opportunity, right, to be able to put something out there that allows people to, you know, who are willing to take the time and kind of engage in something Mm -hmm. and allows them to sort of gain a deeper understanding is great. I mean, that's, you know, why I wrote it. And and so far, like, I mean, the response to the book has been just super positive. Sales are great. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I couldn't be happier. Absolutely couldn't be happier. This is a
0: wonderful thing. It is doing, by the way, I just want to point out to listeners, well on Amazon. I've checked in the math and science section and other stuff. This book is doing wonderfully. And actually, speaking of the book, I like this, the story at the beginning. Um, could you tell us a little bit about, uh, Michael Cohen and then the process of writing the book and how it was an extended period and, uh,
1: the experiences during it? Yeah. So Michael Cohen was a wonderful human being and he was a student of Jim March and he taught organizational studies and political science at Michigan and after I got hired at Michigan, I ran into Michael, and he said, you know, Scott, I used to teach this course based on this old book by Jim March called Model, Introduction to Models in the Social Sciences. And, you know, it needs you. This course needs you. And at the time, I'd been struggling a bit. I'm from a, not even from a town in rural Michigan, a place called Yankee Springs, Michigan. And I came to the University of Michigan as an undergrad in the 1980s. And at that time, they took us in the library, and they would say, this is it. This is your moment. You have four years, where you have access to the world's information. You know, so UVM's libraries are like like the twelve largest in the country. But right? it's an amazing collection. Mm. This is it. This is the only time you'll ever have to see all these books. Right now, all those books are online. So when I was an undergrad, a lot of the courses that we took, you know, had us engaging with the library resources on a daily basis because mm. the university was a repository for knowledge. Well, now all that knowledge just flows through our fingertips, right? It can get it anywhere. Like my son, they're playing pool, and he's like, why do they put chalk on the cue stick? So he looked it up. He's like, oh, more friction, right? You right? <laughs> have to go to the university library. And so I was struggling personally with what do I teach? You know, because it's, you know, what can I teach people now that we have too much information, too much data? It's all there. And so Michael saying, you know, resurrect this course was just this incredible gift. And the, and then, you know, I was probably seven or eight years into teaching it, and the course was doing fine. The students really, really liked it, but there was just this huge, you know, that's what the data revolution had just begun, and I ran into Michael, and I was questioning. I said, you know, there's just, it's all data now, and so one of the things we're trying to just teach people how to, you know, use this data, and he's like, no, 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 stick to this, because at the end of the day, people have to think clearly, both about the world and about data and that can't be done without models and so a lot of what's going on in data is people are figuring out you know effect sizes you know how how much you know what exactly is the effect of this changing this variable what's the slope of this function right so we can kind of climb hills Mm -hmm. and but one of the things is as we were talking about earlier is you know going uphill at this moment like knowing for example this opioid reduces pain (laughs) You may climb the hill and it may take you to a place where you don't want to be because of the backs and externalities we talked about before. So, Mm -hmm. so Michael really, um, you know, convinced me to, to take on this course and I did. And then it went online and I'd been writing a new book because it really needed a new book. And then when I did the online course, I thought, great, I don't need to write a book. And then Michael passed away. And then just this fall, Jim March passed away. But I got so many emails from people around the world saying, there's no book for this course. And I would say, yeah, that's because, you know, I kind of constructed it out of a whole cloth. Right. So Michael, we had a big ceremony when Michael passed away, in remembrance of him, you know, he affected so many people that I just thought, okay, this is, um I got to finish this thing, right? And so right. Uh, I finished it, which is great. And I think, you know, for me, one of the happiest, the, you know, most poignant moments was, you know, right after I got done and I got copies of the book, I took one over to, Hillary Cohen, his wife, and, uh, you know, gave her and the family a copy of the book. Um, You know, he's someone who just touched so many people. And also, I think, never put his finger to the wind to figure out which way are things moving. You know, he had a core set of principles that really trying to fundamentally understand things is really important. Take your time. Be patient. Think slow. And you'll make a contribution. And that's just been really good advice that I've tried to follow.
0: Hmm. This is a nice feature. One thing so you're this is now your fifth book and oh, yes, I know isn't that wonderful that's a cool thing <laughs> That's right It's nice to come to completion points even though it's nice thing because it's a uh, continuous let's say you're always learning and such it's continuous but then there's these stoppage points where it's like a product to put out it's a nice feature that other people can consume there if, if that's their style of a bit a bit more What is what are or is some of your uh, goals for 2019 whether in the
1: book category or other so you know it is interesting like i never thought that i would write a book and let alone five and then sense <laughs> my sons were i wrote a book on diversity and then wrote a book on complexity and then i like folded in on myself and wrote a book called diversity and complexity but that was one that you know was sort of asked to write by the santa fe institute because they said you know you want a set of primers on complexity and then the diversity bonus book was written at the behest of the um the Mellon foundation they wanted me to kind of write a a version of sort of a applied version of my stuff because they felt like it could have more impact than the theoretical work that i'd done in the past Mm -hmm. where i'm heading next and what i'm just really excited about is thinking about the institutions that create sort of collective performance collective intelligence so if -hmm. you go back 30 years ago, 40 years ago, they taught classes at Yale and Chicago and other places called Markets, Hierarchies, Democracies.
2: Mm -hmm. Here's the
1: idea. You know, we use markets to do some things. We use democracies to do some things, and we use hierarchies. And within political science departments, we'll talk about why democracy works and why it doesn't. Within economics departments, we'll talk about why markets work and why they don't. And within business schools, we'll talk about when hierarchies work and why don't. But the thing is, there's a question of which things do you do with which institution, like, what do we use democracy for? What do we use hierarchies for? What do you use markets for? Right. So, for example, pollution, as you mentioned before, it used to be like we didn't do anything with that. Right. What people are saying: Well, we should, government should basically legally only allow certain types of things. Other people are saying: No, we should just have a market for carbon. Right. Right. Um, it's you know, so you could pass a law, you could have a bureaucracy that monitors it, you could have a market. Right. There are all options. Mm-hmm. Well, Jerry Davis. um, Jenna Bednar, who's my wife, Jerry's a business school professor at Michigan, Jenna, my wife is a political scientist, and J.J. Prescott, who's a legal scholar,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: we're running this little conference in February called The Choice, where we make the following argument. First, that there's technology is, when we allocated these institutions, markets, hierarchies, democracies across sort of the landscape, Mm -hmm. we didn't have all this technology. So now, for example, like, you know, we can use, we can vote on things that we never could have voted on before, because we can do it really quickly. Right? Yes. We can get our phones to it. The other thing is there's now a fourth form, which is algorithms. So for example, you know, when you get in your car and you go to Waze, you can just hit Waze and it can tell you how to drive, right? Yes. Or Google Maps. So now you can think, Okay, wait, there's a fourth form, which is algorithms, but then once you realize that, you realize there's also sort of hidden that the other people missed a fifth form, which is Eleanor Ostrom's work on just sort of self organized. You know, you just kind of let things rip. You mm-hmm. <laughs> know Lack of an institution is the fifth form of institution. So Mm -hmm. now you think, wait a minute. You're the social planner. Like you're in charge. There's markets, hierarchies, democracies, algorithms, or no institution at all. Mm -hmm. So right now, access to roads in the United States is kind of no institution at all, right? People just drive however they want to drive. But algorithms are kind of creeping in. But you look at countries like Singapore, or you look at the city of London, right? Now they're using markets to allocate access to those roads in ways you'd never imagine. You could you could imagine a market there, right? Right. Um and so there's it's it really becomes this fundamental question within any organization and within society writ large, how do we solve these things? So let's take like just even like potholes in the road is one example we give. Like right now, we elect people who through a committee decide on potholes, but they're dealing with all sorts of other stuff. Right? Yes. You could imagine alternatively, um, us just having a separate entity that deals with roads that we pay taxes to, right? It's completely separate from the government. Sure. Right? Like, like governmental and and that might work a lot better. But that'd be like creating a hierarchy. You could also imagine though some sort of like um Decentralized algorithm that just uses drones that flies around your satellite data and figures out where the potholes are and films, right? Mm-hmm. You could imagine us voting on an algorithm that decides on how we, we pave roads, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not, it's not obvious given the information we've got, given the technology we've got, which of these institutions you should choose, right? And yes. then in addition, what's really fun about this whole topic is it affects who we are. So think about like buying coffee at, Starbucks. It used to be you went and talked to someone, but now there's like an algorithm where you just buy it and there's probably going to be a machine that makes it and it just puts it on a counter and you go buy it. And right. That's dehumanizing in a lot of ways.
2: Right? right.
1: So there's this kind of Silicon Valley ideal where we're going to replace all sorts of workers with algorithms and replace even voting on things with algorithms. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, if you do, there's a, there's a possibly an efficiency gain, but there could be a cultural loss. And so one of the things I want to think about deeply is if you think of these, you know, these five forms, markets, hierarchies, democracies, algorithms, and just kind of letting things evolve, self-organize. When, you know, when should we use each one of these? What are the pitfalls of each one? And these are questions that have been asked of each one, but people haven't looked kind of at the, at the whole, right? Because the academy is really broken into silos. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So what I want to do is I want to kind of like just try and think about how that process works. So, for example, at a a university, like the University of Michigan has 17 colleges. Mm -hmm. We have, or I think maybe more, maybe 20 or something, but Mm -hmm. like within the colleges, we use different institutions for the same things. So, for example, in the business school and the law school, there's a market for classes. Like you get a set of points and you bid for classes, Mm -hmm. right? In our College of Arts and Sciences, there's a hierarchy. Seniors go first, right? Everyone's equal Pigs are better, sort of thing, right? <laughs> the, um, no, and so it's, uh, it's you could also imagine like you put in preferences and some algorithm would tell you what class to take. I mean, it, you know, there's, it's, it's just really, you could also imagine whether people sign up for classes and then based on how many people sign up, you reallocate the rooms. I mean, there's just so many different ways that could be done now with technology. And when you talk to like deans of colleges and I'll ask them questions like, you know, how do you allocate businesses? How do you, or, you know, how do you, allocate classrooms how do kids sign up for classes how do you you know do whatever they it never even occurred to them that they had the opportunity to choose among those things or that other schools necessarily do it differently the same is true though i'm just using that as something that like you know students can understand but if you go to general motors or if you go to pimco or you go to gilead you know which is a big um, pharmaceutical company Mm -hmm. and you look How do they make choices? How do they allocate things, right? Some are done through internal markets. Some things are voted on. Some are pushed through a hierarchy. Some they don't really even, you know, have it all. Others, they use some fancy algorithm, right? And I think oftentimes on an individual case-by-case basis, they sort of thought, let's do this, but then they don't go back and revisit it, and they don't think about sort of what the broader implications are. Right. As you were mentioning that, it made me think
0: of I'm very social in public, so I'm always talking to people at different places,
1: I think more than almost anybody,
0: and I notice where changes happen. Like, if uh, let's say Whole Foods replaces its uh, whole business with you just walk in and then you buy stuff and you charge it and you walk out, or other stores or companies do that, the social aspect is gone. And then uh, I, I think I notice it very clearly.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. We spent here in France and it's amazing. You know, like if you're talking on your cell phone when you like buy a coffee or baguette, they will just wait for you to end your conversation. <laughs> it's to it be so, it's so rude, right? To be talking on the phone. Right. Um, no, and I think that, I think there's a danger if, you know, I have a drone bringing me pre-cooked meals, um, as opposed to, you know, cooking with other people and those sort of things. I think you can, the people who are defining reality right now for many of us in Silicon Valley and in, you know, Route 128 in Boston or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Or people who may not necessarily um, get that much value from you know, slow social interactions. They may get more value from like being efficient and producing and churning, churning, churning. But right. th- that may not be what leads to a meaningful life.
0: This is true. There's the other effects. In some form of closing I like to do, I always like to say what would be, if you would have a sentence you could say to all people on the planet that would represent maybe uh, a view of yours or something you would want to say to everybody, what would be that?
1: I guess my sentence would be that those of us who've had, you know, support from family and communities that allowed us to flourish. I feel like I've really been given every opportunity to flourish and explore my interests and talents and do some good in the world. Mm Mm-hmm should recognize that um, how precious that opportunity is and how we should do everything we can to allow other people to have that same opportunity because a life where you don't have the opportunity to flourish, I think is, you know, isn't a happy one and it isn't, it isn't a frustrating one. And I think, so one of the real challenges, when you think about like that last project I was talking about is like, how do we construct a set of social, political and economic institutions where everyone has an opportunity to flourish and contribute in some, in their own way, um, that I mean, that's that's you know what motivates my work, and that's why one of the things that um, I find interesting when you look at ecologies or cities or pole societies, and you think what makes this interesting, it's this sort of fact that flourishing can take so many different forms, and the and that those diversity of forms leads to beautiful things, just amazing things.
0: That makes sense. We want people to go where they can be their full self to some limited form. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and and contribute in like their own cool ways. And that can take so many forms. Not everybody's gotta be like some famous artist or musician or writer or whatever, right? But right. just I mean you can like, you know, coach soccer, you can cook meals for your family. There's so many things you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But you know, just but having this sort of having the freedom and opportunity to to flourish is super important. That is so very. That's cool. part, you know, all it's it's we have to keep in mind that that's one of the great things about America that um, you know, other countries as well. But it's 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 a thing that we've tried to keep in our identity, and it's important. Right. We like to let everybody you have a shot. That's the idea. <laughs> right.
0: That's a good thing. This is wonderful. I want to say I have been glad to have had you on this wonderful 200th episode of the podcast. Wonderful material uh knowledge sharing and uh i always like people who create uh writers scientists researchers these are my that's kind of my people i guess i would say and so i like to connect with those individuals such as yourself as well
1: yeah awesome and one of the and thanks everyone the great thing is uh opportunities to um promote these ideas are great and the book is uh I mean, one thing I would say about the book is the book is probably a better buy as a hardcover in some respects, even though you might have a techie audience, because you know, because it is kind of like a reference for all these models, and it's nice to pull through. And it's got a great spine, so when you see it on the, your shelf, you'll see how it looks like a Lifesaver five-flavor pack. <laughs> That's kind of nice. <laughs> That's pretty good. Super happy.
0: That is cool. That is true. It does look cool. The book is nice. Yeah. Wonderful. And glad to have had you on here.
1: Yep. Thanks a lot. Have a happy holidays. Same to you.
0: And we are out.